The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. Passing gas. Just before 7.30 in the morning of January the 1st, question mark, got airborne from Van Nuys Airport. They had scheduled their flight so that they could overfly the 1929 Rose Bowl American football game in Pasadena, California, to get more publicity for their record attempt, for this was no ordinary flight. As their American-built military version of the Fokker trimotor climbed out, despite only having 100 gallons of fuel on board, the five-man crew prepared themselves for a very long flight. Within the hour, they were joined in the air over Los Angeles by one of two modified Douglas C-1 single-engine biplanes, this one imaginatively named Refueling Airplane Number 1. It came up alongside question mark, which had been more creatively named in response to the oft-asked question for this flight duration record attempt. How long do you think you'll stay aloft? That's the question was their stock reply and the name of their aircraft. The refueler moved above and then slightly in front of the Fokker and stabilized at 80 miles an hour. Then, from the belly of refueling airplane number one, the hose handler, Second Lieutenant Woodring, wound out 50 feet of lead-weighted 2.5-inch fire hose wrapped in copper grounding wire. From a hatch cut in the roof of question mark, the crew grabbed the bobbing fuel hose and wearing rain gear and goggles for protection, placed the end into a bucket connected to a pair of supplementary fuel tanks in the fuselage. Within 90 seconds, they had taken on 100 gallons, which they then pumped up into the main tanks in the wing, using a wobble pump. During one refueling, turbulence pulled the hose out of the receiving bucket. We went over the Rose Bowl. It was very bumpy, as you could appreciate, as we should have appreciated, up against those mountains in January and the refueling plane and the question mark were torn apart. I was piloting the question mark, and I realized that General Spatz had probably been drenched in high-octane gasoline. Spatz was at the time a captain, but would rise to become a four-star general. Fearing that chemical burns might force him to parachute out of the aircraft to receive medical aid, Spatz shed all his clothing and was wiped off with oil-soaked rags. He subsequently experienced two more spills, but used oil and zinc oxide to prevent injury. Fuel wasn't the only commodity passed between the aircraft. They needed engine oil as well as food, replacement parts and a few luxuries. On New Year's Day, they were sent a hot turkey dinner, and when they passed the previous endurance record, they received cheese, figs, olives and caviar for a celebration. To save weight, Question Mark didn't have a radio, so they communicated by using flares, flags, flashlights, weighted message bags, notes tied to the supply line, and even messages written on the sides of PW9D fighters, especially painted black and nicknamed Blackboard Planes. Although the crew flew the plane at slow cruising speeds, their engines were eventually overstressed from extended use. 
The left engine began losing power as early as the third day. Sergeant Huey taped down his trouser cuffs, donned a parachute, rigged a lifeline and walked out onto the wing to service the engines from makeshift catwalks. Sadly, the in-flight maintenance only delayed the inevitable engine wear. Once the engines began missing, the crew kept the question mark within gliding distance of their airfield. Eventually, on Monday the 7th of January, the left engine broke a pushrod and seized. The increase in power required on the remaining two right J5 radials put an unacceptable strain on them, so the decision was made to land. After six days, 15 hours and 40 minutes, Question mark touched down safely at Van Nuys, then known as Metropolitan Airport. The flight had exceeded the longest duration record by over four days, during which it had been refueled 37 times, 12 of which were at night. They successfully transferred over 5,500 gallons of fuel. The crew were all given the DFC, but interestingly the tanker crews received no recognition, no decorations at the time. Such is often the lot of a tanker crew. This wasn't the first record-breaking flight aided by air-to-air refuelling and far from the last, but one of many as this new way to replenish aircraft in the air was explored. The very first occurred six years earlier, and it was based on a development by Alexander Nikolaevich Prokofiev de Siversky. Of noble Russian parentage, Siversky was a well-schooled man who served with the Imperial Russian Navy, but who transferred to the Military School of Aeronautics at Sebastopol in the Crimea. On his very first mission for the Baltic fleet, he attacked a German destroyer, but was shot down, and in the crash his bombs exploded, severely injuring him and killing his observer. Despite losing one of his legs, he proved to his superiors that he could still fly by appearing unannounced at an air show, after which, despite his spirited performance, he was arrested. However, Tsar Nicholas II intervened on his behalf and he was allowed to resume flying in the military. Only three days after returning to combat duty, he downed his first of 13 enemy aircraft that he claimed. He was serving in the United States when Russia was torn apart by the 1917 revolution and he remained there, offering his services to the War Department and becoming an assistant to General Billy Mitchell. He applied for and obtained numerous patents, including the world's first gyroscopically stabilised bomb site. The aircraft manufacturer he founded, Sobeski Aircraft Corporation on Long Island, went on to become Republic Aviation Corporation, which would become an industrial behemoth during World War II. One of Sversky's patents was for an air-to-air refueling system, which was first tried in June 1923 between a pair of de Havilland DH-4 biplanes of the United States Army Air Service. Lieutenant Lowell Smith, 
a pioneering airman who would claim many records, including the first aerial circumnavigation of the world, was the pilot, and he went on to conduct an air refueled flight that, at 37 hours 15 minutes, took the world endurance record. Similar feats were taking place in Europe, and the first practical system, concisely termed the Rappled Line Looped Hose Air-to-Air Refueling System, was developed by Sir Alan Cobham in 1934, and his company would go on to parent Flight Refueling Limited, a company that still exists. Cobham's system was used to refuel flying boats so that they could perform regular, non-stop transatlantic crossings the tanker aircraft being a Handley Page Harrow, but these flights were interrupted by the outbreak of the Second World War. However, in the closing months of the war, the USAF purchased a number of flight refuelling systems to equip their B-29s and later B-50s. It was this system that made possible the flight of Lucky Lady 2, a superfortress of the 43rd Bomb Wing, which flew non-stop around the world in 94 hours and one minute, proving that vast distances and geographical barriers were no longer an obstacle to American military air power. Cobham knew that his looped hose system left a lot to be desired, and he began work on an improved system that remains, to this day, the backbone for the tanker forces of many countries. The probe and drogue system. This simple and flexible technology has changed little since its conception. It consists of a drum inside a pod, or inside the fuselage, that carries a refueling hose tipped with an aerodynamic basket, a drogue. It looks something like a shuttlecock that uh, badminton players beat to death. The drogue stabilises the hose in flight and also acts as a funnel to aid the receiving aircraft's probe to make contact. The receiving aircraft has either a fixed probe, mainly found on larger or slower machines, or a retractable probe, usually on fighters that, when extended, can be flown into the basket. There it is gripped by the connection mechanism and fuel can be passed. The basket is made from strips of steel, which form spokes, held together by a flexible ring at the open end, containing an aerodynamic canopy with illumination for night refueling. Once in contact, the receiver slowly drives his aircraft forward by about 10 feet, or 3 metres, and as he does so, the drum automatically winds in, so that there isn't any slack in the hose. When in the correct position, the tanker can then allow fuel to pass down the hose, through the probe and into the receiver's fuel tanks. Probe and drogue systems were subsequently fitted to RAF tankers and a multitude of other aircraft, particularly those of the US Navy and Marines. A refueling pod can be fitted to almost any aircraft, such as the A-4 Skyhawk, the A-6 Intruder, the Super Etonda, the Buccaneer, the Tornado, and on larger aircraft, such as the Vickers VC-10, the Handley Page Victor, and the Avro Vulcan, which had as many as three hoses. 
C-130 Hercules, Lockheed Vikings, Tristars, Boeing 707s, 767s, A310s, A330s, A400Ms and many others have all operated as probe and drogue tankers. This is the only practical system for carrier operations and helicopters can only refuel from a drogue. In the United States, the system choice went down a different path. In 1948, General Spatz, who you will remember from the record-breaking flight he made and the fuel dousing he got in the record-winning flight I mentioned earlier, was now the first chief of the staff of the newly created United States Air Force. He made aerial refueling a priority, and despite the success of the Cobham system, asked General Curtis LeMay, commander of SAC, to task Boeing to develop a refueling system. SAC wanted a refueling system to feed the fuel-hungry long-range bombers that they had at the time that could pass fuel faster than a flexible hose could. The Air Force's fighter community resisted eliminating the hose and drogue, but was overruled by the Strategic Air Command, which operated the tanker fleet, and during the Cold War placed a higher value on refueling bombers. This led to the Flying Boom refueling system being adopted by the USAF and built into many American military aircraft since. The flying boom system is attached to the rear of a tanker's fuselage. It's gimbaled to allow it to move around with the receiver aircraft, within limits that is. The boom contains a rigid telescopic pipe, the position of which is controlled by a pair of V-shaped aerofoils that act as flight control surfaces, moving the boom around aerodynamically. At the end of the fuel pipe is a nozzle with a flexible ball joint. The receiver opens the receptacle and when in position, the boom operator flies the fuel pipe towards the receiver, extending it and guiding it into the receptacle to make contact. Once properly mated, the fuel is allowed to flow. The perceived shortcomings of using a single boom to refuel fighter aircraft is reflected in a 1990 Air Force initiative to standardise DOD fighter aircraft refuelling on the hose and drogue method. As first conceived, the initiative consisted of three elements, placing probes on all F-15 and F-16 fighters, incorporating a probe in the design of the F-22A, and adding two drogue pods to at least 150 KC-135s. To provide redundancy and flexibility, Air Force fighters would retain their boom receptacles. The 1991 war with Iraq, Operation Desert Storm, heightened DOD's concern over a lack of uniformity in aerial refueling methods. Navy leaders expressed frustration and dissatisfaction with the number of Air Force aerial refueling aircraft capable of employing the hose and drogue. It appeared that limited access to Air Force tankers had handicapped or complicated the Navy's long-range strike capability in some conflicts. Because KC-135 aircraft employ a single hose, Navy fighters must cycle six to eight aircraft through the refueling queue. 
By the time the last aircraft has refuelled, the first one requires more gas. This process can require three to four refuelling hits for each aircraft before reaching a distant target. U.S. Navy pilots who flew early missions against the Taliban during Operation Enduring Freedom described the UK Royal Air Force 6 VC-10 tankers that supported them as a godsend and the silent heroes of the air war. The Navy pilots expressed a clear preference for RAF tankers over USAF tankers. And, by the way, this isn't my opinion but that of a CRS report written for Congress by Christopher Bolcom, specialist in national defence, foreign affairs and defence. It was late in the 1990s that the USAF started to look for a replacement for the ageing Boeing KC-135 fleet of tankers. Initially, it looked like the Airbus multi-role tanker transport, a militarised version of the A330 airliner, would win the contract. After all, it was the airframe that the Air Force wanted. But the deal was overturned amid political pressure and the US Air Force forced to rerun the competition, which Boeing ultimately won, landing a 49 billion US dollar contract in 2011 to build 179 of its Boeing 767-based tankers. Sadly, this choice has led to prolonged delays and cost growth that has amounted to several billion dollars, but work on the new gen tanker continues. It marries the 767-200ER fuselage with the Dash 300F's wings, has manual flight controls, a digital flight deck, an improved fly-by-wire version of the KC-10 boom. Importantly, the KC-46 Pegasus possesses both a boom and wing-mounted drogue pods plus a centerline hose, so it can work with aircraft carrying either refueling system. The KC-46 has been plagued with problems, but Boeing have worked through most, however it still has at least three Cat-1 deficiencies, all related to its very advanced camera-operated digital flying boom system. However, airframes have, at last, started arriving at units. But this isn't the end of the story, as next week I'm going to talk about some of the more remarkable mishaps and accomplishments that in-flight refuelling has achieved. If you enjoyed this story, then please throw us some stars and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at AirlinePilotGuy.com.